0: Good morning. Good morning, our passage today is Mark 8, 27, and we're going to chapter 9, verse 1. Let me encourage you to turn there together, it's going to be up on the screen, read along with me. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, Another others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Calling the crowds to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his father with the holy angels. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. In many ways, we have come to a crossroads in the book of Mark. You see, up to this point, we've been asking this question for for many weeks and for months. Who is Jesus? We've been looking at the test. We've been asking that over. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And I mentioned months ago, and it's sort of a spoiler, I said this declaration from Peter was going to be the turning point for the rest of the gospel of Mark. And from here on out, we are headed towards Jerusalem. We are going full speed to the cross. You'll notice we bled over a little bit into chapter 9, verse 1. And that's because the chapter division here is rather unfortunate. Because 9-1 is crucial for our understanding of the rest of the passage before us. And that's because Jesus is teaching his disciples, he's teaching us, that the key to God's way to victory in the world is hidden here. The key to God's victory in the world, the entire portion about this is about the, the kingdom of God. And the way the kingdom of God comes about on earth, how it comes to power. He's telling them plainly of his impending death, his impending suffering. And he's saying, this is the power of the kingdom. In God's economy, this is how we turn the world upside down. The values of the world are turned upside down. This is our path to victory. Through suffering, we conquer. Through dying, we live. By losing, we win. Now, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I'm going to quickly observe the summary events. What's taking place in the passage so we know what's going on? Jesus has journeyed north with his disciples. He's at Caesarea Philippi. And at some point, he stops to challenge them. He says, Who do people say that I am? Now, the answer they say, John the Baptist. Uh, some people say Elijah. One of, some people say the prophets. You're just one of the prophets. Then he challenges them personally. Who do you say that I am? You can imagine a moment of silence, right? Who's going to talk first, okay? They're all looking around like, oh, who's going to be? You? They all look to Peter. And Peter's like, you're the Christ. You are the Christ. And Matthew's gospel adds him saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Boom. I mean, this powerful moment. Duh. Matthew has Jesus answering Peter's confession. He gives him a confession of his own. He says this in Matthew 16, 17 through 18. Jesus answered, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Powerful, powerful moment. And then immediately following this confession... From Peter and from Jesus, we move to this new teaching. It says, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and he must be killed. And after three days, he must rise again. You see, this is all new. Never before had Jesus spoken so plainly about his coming cross, about his coming suffering. Never before had he told them so clearly about the resurrection. That would come after the cross. And he says all of these things must happen in order for the power of the kingdom to be made manifest in the world. You see, this is God's way to victory. This is God's way to the crown of glory. It lies only in the path of the cross. Now, if we put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples, how would we have responded to Jesus' teaching? How would we have responded, the person we love the most, imagine whoever that is, they come to you and they say, I must suffer. I must be rejected. I must be handed over. I must be killed so that I might rise again. How would you respond to such things? You can imagine those little band of fearful followers. Their hearts are pounding. They're flushing cheeks. They they love Jesus so much it's swelling up inside them. And all of their hopes and dreams are dashed. You have to go die? And so Peter wrongly, though not out of character for Peter, grabs Jesus, pulls him away in a moment of passion, and he rebukes Jesus. Never let it be so. You say it must be. I say it must not be. Jesus, you can't. You're supposed to liberate us. You're our king. You're not supposed to die at the hands of our enemies. You can't. And then Jesus comes with a stern response. Get behind me, Satan. For you do not, you're setting the things, your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It's a tense moment. And Jesus calls forth all the crowd and all the disciples. And now he's going to begin to teach about the necessity of the cross. This is God's path to victory. And at the end, he frames the entire teaching with 9-1. He says, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Crucial. This is so crucial for us to understand this. Because what Jesus is saying is, as your king, as the prophesied Messiah, I'm going to the cross because I must go to the cross. And anyone who would be my disciple, who would follow God's path to victory must take up their cross as well. You must go that path and follow me as well. The kingdom can only come in power by way of the cross. And it was true then, and it was tr- it's true for us now. The preacher Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, there are no crown wearers in heaven who were not also cross bearers here below. There's one path to Jesus Christ, one path to heaven is through Jesus Christ. It's the path of the cross. So for our purposes today, this is our main theme. This is our main theme, and then we have three little sub points under the theme. And our theme is the path of the cross is our only path to victory. What is foolishness to the world? What's a stumbling block to so many is our means of conquest. And if we want to see God's kingdom come in power in our generation, in our lifetime, if we want to see it in our little church, just as the disciples surely did, then we must follow in Christ's footsteps as well. If we want to conquer our enemies, if we want to conquer our enemies, what's our enemies? Flesh, the world, the devil. We must walk the path of the cross. This is our first point. Our first point is the path of the cross is the only way to defeat sin. Now, if you think about it, the kingdom up to this point had not been seen in power. Rather, it had been seen time and time again in weakness. The kingdom had come in weakness. It had come in humility. Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am? You know, the pro- prophets, Elijah. Nobody says, you're the Messiah. Of course you're the Messiah. Nobody reports that back. Only one soul among them, Peter, gets it right. Only one soul is illuminated by God the Father to see Jesus as the Christ. And we think, that's wonderful. What a tremendous moment in history. And then minutes later, he rebukes Jesus. And we go, Peter, you were so close. Jesus says, you don't have the things of the kingdom of God in mind. You have the things of the devil. You see, Peter didn't understand God's way to victory. He didn't understand what Jesus was saying. So Jesus tells them of his must and how he must go to Jerusalem. He must be handed over. Even the naming of his would-be captors is embarrassing to the kingdom. Who, Who wants to capture him? It's kingdom people. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the Pharisees. They're supposed to be the religious folk. And they're the ones who want to kill him. All the authority within the city was aimed with hostility, with malice towards the king of kings. This is a picture of the kingdom of God in weakness, not in power. But you see, the key to seeing the power of the kingdom is in that must of Jesus. He must go, not because he's a victim of circumstances or because he's hemmed in on every side by his enemies. He goes as a victorious high priest of God, And he's going up to offer once and for all a sacrifice for his people of himself. He comes as Christus Victor in order that he might accomplish the purpose and the plan of redemption that God had since eternity past. This was always plan A. It was always plan A that Jesus would go die and be victorious over sin. He must go to the cross because he must build the kingdom of God and realize our plan of redemption. You see, the only way to present his bride us as spotless, as holy, as blameless was through the power of the cross. And the only way to defeat sin once and for all the sin that so easily entangles us, that holds us back. The sin that keeps us from God was for him to go to Jerusalem to suffer, to die in our place, to become a curse for us on a tree, But you see, that's not the language of weakness. That's not the language of weakness. That's the calm, strong, powerful language of one who only ever saw death interpreted by resurrection life. He only ever saw death interpreted by the resurrection. And beloved, if we want to defeat sin in our lives, then we have to look first to the cross we have to look to the king on the cross. We must take up our own cross, die to self, and live to Christ. We must not flee from suffering or recoil at this idea of the cross. We have to embrace it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so we preach Christ crucified. We proclaim Christ as the power of God, the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Though the kingdom may appear weak at times, we take heart, knowing that it is precisely in our weakness that Christ says, My power is made perfect. And we worship a king on a cross, but he does not stay there. Because he must rise again. And the Bible says, so too for us who are in Christ, that must remains. We must also rise with him. Secondly, the path of the cross is the only way to understand the suffering that we experience in this world. Jesus tells his disciples, 9:1 one again. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come With power. Now, this doesn't mean that (laughs) there's an immortal disciple, you know, wandering around, waiting for the consummation, the total finality of the kingdom to come. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you guys won't die, you know, you'll live forever. That's not what he's saying. What it means is that some of these men, some of the crowd hearing this, some of the disciples would live to see it come in power during their lifetime. And if you know the Gospels, if you know the book of Acts, then you know that's exactly what they did see. They saw Jesus Christ dying, rising, and many of them witnessed the power of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. They saw the kingdom come in power. This same Peter, who at one point does not have in mind the things of the kingdom, brings 3,000 into the kingdom in one day. That is power. That is power. And you have to think about that little band again. Think of the terror and the despair and the suffering and the defeat they felt during those final days of Jesus. Yet through it all, they witnessed an unconquered king. They saw Jesus from that moment until the very end move with dignity and with authority and with power like nothing we've ever seen before. They saw Jesus in the garden. When Jesus was in the garden, he uttered kingly words and prayers for his people. They witnessed him bound and beaten, brought to a mock trial where he affirmed his messiahship and his kingship boldly. They heard him cry from the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I can imagine they thought back to his previous words Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. You see, they killed the body, but his spirit, he commended that to God. He died as a king. He was raised as the eternal king of life. We remember his words of authority. He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down myself. I have authority to lay it down. I have have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. This is the kingdom of God in power. These are strange things. These are mysterious things. Things These are things too wonderful for us to put into mere words. But this is the mystery of a king who dies in agony, dies in pain, dies with suffering, and yet somehow triumphs over it all. This is the deep magic that the witch of Narnia never knew about. It breaks the stone table. This and this only is the way the kingdom comes in power. It's the only way. It's through the cross. And by us who bear the name, we bear the name of Little Christ, Little Christians. And we hear this and we confess it's not easy. It's not easy for us to believe, for us to understand. It's even harder for us to put into practice. Personally, I I am like Peter. I need to hear that rebuke from Jesus. I need him to say, Heath, you're not setting your mind. On the things of God. You're not not setting your mind on the kingdom. But on the things of man. Not away from the cross. heath, towards it. You must embrace it. You must die to live. See the only way to understand our suffering. The suffering we experience in this world. Is in light of the Christ suffering on the cross in our place. The only way to find our lives. Is to lay our own lives down. This is turning the world's values up. On its head. Verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. That doesn't make any sense to the world. But Jesus is saying this. He's saying, I lost my identity so that you might actually have one. (laughs) I lost my identity so that you might have one in me. I suffered in your place so that you might have peace. I died so that you might have life. And Jesus says life abundantly. So many think that taking up your cross means I just have to have self-denial. I just have to suffer. I just need to suffer. I need to, to grin and bear it. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible does not say taking up your cross is just about grinning and bear it. Jesus says my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Scottish minister Samuel Rutherford said, Christ's cross is such a burden as sails are to a ship or wings to a bird. (laughs) You see, the cross of Christ is the freest we'll ever be. It is a joy to walk in our master's footsteps. It is a joy because he suffered in our place and he is the first fruits of resurrection life. And so, believer, if we try to establish the kingdom of God through the methods and the programs of men, we will fail. We'll fail if that's all we're aiming for. The kingdom of God does not come about through extraordinary strength, through intellectual prowess, through money or through fame. The kingdom of God is born and planted in weakness. But you see, it's raised in power born and planted in weakness and raised in power. It's established on weak rock men like Peter. They're transformed into living stones by the power of the Holy Spirit. With Christ as the cornerstone, weak individuals like us are now built up and established into an eternal house, into the house of God, into the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, not even the gates of hell can stop you. Which leads to our third and our final point the path of the cross is the victory road for the church if we go back to Matthew sixteen eighteen, Jesus again his confession to Peter I tell you you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it now you have to remember here Jesus is talking to Hebrew people And if we go back in the the Old Testament and we trace the figurative use of this word rock or, or foundation, all this stuff, it's never applied to people. It's always applied to God himself. And so what Jesus is doing here by naming Simon Petros Peter is he's saying this. He's saying it's not upon Peter himself that I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build it upon his confession It's upon his confession of me being the Christ, the gospel confession. That's what I'm going to build. I will build the church upon God himself and my kingdom will consist of rock people. They will be rock people who are built into God. Peter found the cornerstone and by touching the foundation, he became Petros. He became a living stone in Christ. And then Jesus says the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. For us to understand this, we again have to see that kingdom of God in weakness. We have to go back. We need to see the kingdom of God in weakness. Satan holds us, men and women, under power in three key areas. Sin, sorrow, and death. That's his power over us. And he holds that over us. He looms it over our heads. Those are his weapons. And that's presently where the church of God finds itself. We are in a beleaguered city, under attack, constantly under assault by Satan, by sin, by power, by by sorrow, sin, and death. But Jesus says, take heart. Take heart, little stone. Take heart, little Peter. For through the power of the cross, I've overcome sin, and I've overcome suffering, and I've overcome Satan in one masterful blow. I did it for you. And for the Christian, Jesus has now removed the fear of all these three things. He's declawed the devil. He has defanged death itself. Because of Christ, the church takes the gates of hell off its hinges. We ransack the gates of hell. We rip it off its hinges and we proceed into a larger life that lies beyond. It could never stop us. We sing in the face of death. Where is your victory? Where is your sting? <laughs> we mock death. How can we sing it? Because death still awaits for us, doesn't it? Still waits for all of us. But we sing that. We mock death precisely because the sting of death, the Bible says, is what? Is sin. And our sin debt has been paid for. Victory begins over sin. It proceeds sin over sorrow and then it ends over death therefore this church that christ built is meant to be an aggressive force on earth we are battling and we are building we are taking ground we're establishing outposts we are moving forward we are setting the captives free and so we sing onward christian soldiers marching as to war with the cross of jesus Going on before. Last weekend, I attended my uh, grandfather's memorial service, Don Tawes. He's a wonderful man. My uncle preached his memorial service. And the title of my uncle's sermon was Swallowed Up by Life. This was based on 2 Corinthians 5 4. And as I sat there and I listened to all the people talking about my my grandfather's ministry, he was a OPC pastor, and all these wonderful things about him, and I heard my uncle preach, I thought, Satan must absolutely hate every moment of this. I bet Satan hates the funerals of the saints. I bet he can't stand it. Because my uncle, he stood up there and he said, don't you dare for one second think that Don Taws is dead. My grandfather is now more alive Than he ever was on earth. We had tears on our smiling faces. You see, that was a celebration of life. It was a celebration of triumph. It was a celebration of the victory that Christ accomplished on my grandfather's behalf. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so at death, the grave goes empty, it goes hungry. We are bathed in life. We are swallowed up by life. We are engulfed in life. We are soaked in life. We experience resurrection life eternal. Now we know in this world we will have trouble, but take heart. Christ has overcome the world. And so the message today is, beloved, if you are battling with sin, take it to the cross. Take it to the cross. If you are suffering with depression, some sort of illness, a momentous loss, whatever it may be, bring it to the cross. You do not have a dispassionate Savior. You do not have a Savior who who looks at you and goes, oh, they're back. They've come again? We have a king on a cross who knows all about suffering. And the Bible says we are children of the promise. We are heirs of that kingdom. If you fear death, look to the empty tomb. Jesus says, fear no more. That's you. That's you one day. There will be no death. You'll be swallowed up in life. He's the first fruits. And if he's raised, we must be raised as well. And so we interpret death in light of resurrection. That's power. That's power. Do you see the power of the kingdom? Do you see why Satan is scared to death of us? This is precisely why he has worked so hard from the very beginning to stop the kingdom of God from advancing. We go back to the garden. And in Genesis 3.15, he thought he did. Oh, I've cursed all of mankind. right? I got Eve. And then God comes and he says, oh, you! this was the plan all along. And there will come one, there will come the promised seed who will crush your little head. You'll strike at his heel, he's going to crush your head. And ever since that promise was made, Satan's been doing everything to stop it from happening. We go to Cain and Abel, and Cain kills Abel. Ha ha, I've done it! I've stopped the seed, I've stopped the promised line. And then here comes Seth. Seth. And Seth is born. And Satan tries everything to stop Seth's line. And the dragon is there and he's rearing his head. He wants to win. And then we read in Genesis six twelve, God sees how corrupt the earth had become. All the people on earth had corrupted their ways. And the dragon laughs. But there was one, Noah and his family. And they escape on a boat. The promised seed lives. And the promise concerning the seeds now given to Abraham and to his wife. But humanly speaking, it can never be fulfilled. They're too old. The wife is barren. They cannot have a baby. The dragon laughs. He laughs with Sarah until her belly starts to swell. And then we laugh because the seed continues. And Isaac is born and the promise goes on. And Isaac is there with another barren woman, Rebekah, the woman he loves. And out of her comes another miracle child, Jacob, And he receives the blessing in place of Esau. He narrowly escapes death. The dragon rears back his head. He wants to devour the seed. He attacks the descendants of Jacob. Everything to stop the Jewish people. We find them worshiping a golden calf. God says to Moses, let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. Satan will win unless an intercessor is there. And Moses stands in the gap. The promise is saved again. History continues. Out of the tribe of Judah, God chooses one family, that of David, to carry the promise. Satan aims all his arrows at David. I must stop David. David must be destroyed. And so Saul throws his spears. And Goliath makes his taunts and his boasts. And David's own son tries to kill him. But the tribe of Judah carries forth. The promise continues. And all the combined forces of Israel and Assyria, they come together. They are waging war against Judah, against the promised seed. They will blot out the face of David once and for all. They want it done. Will Christ be born of the seed of David? Will God's promise stand? The prophet Isaiah meets with King Ahaz. He says, Ahaz, God tells you to ask for a sign. Ahaz says, no, I'm not going to do that. And he says, okay. Then God will give, himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. You shall call his name Emmanuel. If Satan was cocky, he's not anymore. In the 5th century, King Ahasuerus is reigning. At the request of Haman, the king issues a decree. All the Jews shall be put, put to death, and little Esther stands in the gap. Then we move to the final act of this mighty drama. Little town of Bethlehem, where in a manger lies the Christ. The wise men meet with Herod. Herod does not want this to happen. The dragon knows this is his moment. This is the final chance he has. Wise men, when you find the child, report back to me. I'd love to go worship him. The wise men are warned. They return a different way. But he can't give up. Satan cannot give up. So all the infants in Bethlehem, two years and under, are murdered. But Herod fails. (laughs) And the dragon fails. In Christ's birth in Bethlehem, his coming in humility, his coming in weakness is the culmination of thousands of battles, of hundreds of victories, of, of this little kingdom in weakness, winning and winning and winning and winning in this majestic coming of the King of glory. And our Savior's death on the cross for his people, that resurrection three days later, was when the boot stepped on the head of the snake once and for all. That's power. That is power. J.R.R. R. Tolkien invented this wonderful word. He calls it a eucatastrophe. And he says in order to describe everything that I've just mentioned, he, he comes up with this eucatastrophe. It's a massive turn in fortune from seemingly unconquerable situation to an unforeseen victory. He says it's usually brought about by grace rather than heroic effort. And such a turn is catastrophic in the sense of its breath and its surprise and positive in that a great evil or misfortune is suddenly averted. Tolkien said this, this is the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears. And I was there led to the view that it produces its peculiar effect because it's sudden glimpse of truth. Your whole nature is chained in material cause and effect. The chain of death feels a sudden relief as if a major limb out of joint had suddenly snapped back in place. And I concluded by saying that the resurrection of Jesus was the greatest eucatastrophe possible in the greatest fairy story. And it produces that essential emotion, Christian joy which produces tears because it is qualitatively so like sorrow. Because it comes from those places where joy and sorrow are at one. And they're reconciled. As selfishness and altruism are now lost in love. This is the power of the cross. The eucatastrophe. Where all the, all the powers of darkness, where, where hell bent on stopping this. And then in the manger in Bethlehem comes the king of power, in weakness, in humility, and he dies on a cross. This is life. This is life. It's a life that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, where we are treated as impostors, yet are true. We are as unknown and yet well known, as dying, and behold we live, as punished yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. So what are we to do? How are we to close? How do we see the kingdom come in power in Panama City? The pastor Vince Havner, he writes this: he said, We need men of the cross. With the message of the cross, bearing the marks of the cross. And in order to do this, we must first see Jesus not only as our king on the throne, but we have to behold him as the king on the cross. Because if we just see him as a king on the throne, as many Christians do, they will swear their fealty to him out of fear, out of some sort of idea that they have to earn his love. But if we see him as the king on the cross, then we know there's nothing we can do to earn his love. He's loved us with a love that never ends, never fails out of grace. And it's that sort of love, that sort of thing that will cause us to throw our crowns at his feet. Not out of fear, but out of love and devotion. Not my will, Lord, your will be done. This is what Peter hadn't learned yet. He hadn't seen it yet, but he would. He would learn it. For us today, the kingdom of God must begin with humility, with weakness, with us relinquishing our own thrones. We must admit we need a savior. We need a king on a cross. And then and only then will we lose our lives for him. And in so doing, gain the world. If you don't know Christ is king, let today be the day you finally do. Repent, believe, fall at his feet, embrace him. I'm going to close with a poem from John Newton. so beautiful. John Newton wrote this. He said, in evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agonies and blood, who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure, never till my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. Alas, I knew not what I did, but now my tears are vain. Where shall my trembling soul be hid? For I, the Lord, have slain. A second look he gave, which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I die that thou mayst live. Thus, while his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of grace, it seals my pardon, too. With pleasing grief and mournful joy, my spirit now is filled, that I should such a life destroy, yet live by him I killed. That's the power of the cross.